Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, it's an important chapter. God in this chapter, he's going to tip his hand to Israel and tell her exactly what he plans to do. I'm going to be reading from chapter 25, beginning in verse 12. Hear now God's word. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years." Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, a land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to learn this morning what it means to grab a hold of a promise that you give and to pray for it, to fast for it, to plead for it, to long for it, as a way to enjoy it and savor it. You give us good promises. Let us hold them in faith. Teach us how to do that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this morning we're going to do a little bait and switch. We read from Jeremiah 25, but we're really going to find ourselves in a different passage once we get our bearings here that I'm going to preach from, and that's all going to be clear as we go. Jeremiah chapter 25, it opens in verse 1 telling us the historical setting. This is actually now the first year of the reign of the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now up until this point in Jeremiah chapter 25, the world superpower has been Assyria. Assyria has dominated the world, dominated the world. They've done that for the past 150 years. Their capital is in Nineveh, which is close to modern-day Mosul, Iraq. But now with Nebuchadnezzar, a new day has dawned in the world. There is a new superpower in the world, Babylon, based out of Babylon, the city just south of modern-day Baghdad. Now, in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, historically we know that he put an absolute schoolyard beatdown on the other powerful nation at the time, Egypt, in the Battle of Carchemish. Nebuchadnezzar, he comes, he comes down to Carchemish, passing by Judah, and he defeats Pharaoh there, and then he establishes himself as the heavyweight champ of the world. When he does that, it is the beginning of the end for Judah. The kingdom of Judah, it's a small kingdom, it's between these powers, and she's in danger now, not simply because she's small, and not just because she's vulnerable, and not just because she sits on prime intercontinental trading route. This is good real estate for other kingdoms to have. It's not just because of that as if this was a historical inevitability for her to be conquered. 
She is on her way to her demise because God has promised that she would be on her way to her demise. In chapter 25, right before the passage I read, God says to Israel, I have begged you for 23 years to repent of your sin and to turn to me. Run from your idols, run to me, trust in me as the one true God. I have come to you again and again and I have begged you and because you have refused to repent and trust in me alone for your salvation, I will send my servant Nebuchadnezzar. He is my servant who will do my bidding. He will destroy Jerusalem and he will exile the people of Israel from their homeland to Babylon where they will wait for 70 years. Now at the same time as this promise is being made, Nebuchadnezzar, he defeats Egypt and on his way back, he lays siege to Jerusalem. And this isn't the ultimate exile. This is a warning shot. He makes the king of Jerusalem pay tribute to him. And then while he's there, he takes some of the best and the brightest nobility from Jerusalem. And he brings back to Babylon with him, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, along with many others from the nobility. I want you to see that timeline because I want you to see that Daniel and Jeremiah are contemporaries. They're living at the same time. Daniel may have heard Jeremiah preach from the street corner in Jerusalem or at the temple, but they lived at the same time. That's the setting of Jeremiah chapter 25. Now keep that in your mind because we are now going to fast forward. We came from Assyria Then we came to Babylon. Then we came 20 years from this point to the exile of Israel. They went on to the land of Babylon. And then there is a new superpower that defeats Babylon, the Medes and then the Persians. In power right now, as we fast forwarded, is Darius the Mede. Now, Daniel, he's been exiled. He's still in a foreign land. He still has a prominent government position under Darius, but he still cannot return to his homeland because God has promised that he will not be able to return to his homeland. He's gotten through the whole Daniel and the lion's den ordeal under Darius. And when we find him now, he's sitting in his room and he's reading, of all things, the very passage we just read. Jeremiah chapter 25. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel 9? Flip forward just a few prophets and let's get to Daniel 9 and this is the place that we're actually going to camp out. I'm in Daniel 9 and I'm going to read just the first five verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by the descent of a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done what is wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. Now, 
I don't know if this is an encouragement to you as we've gone through this series in Jeremiah, as we ourselves have kind of beaten our heads against Jeremiah to understand it, that the prophet Daniel was doing the exact same thing. He's sitting in his room and he's studying and studying and studying the prophet of Jeremiah for himself. But we need to pause here on what Daniel does and chew on it a bit because there's something I think that's unusual about Daniel's response to reading this passage. There's something he does after he reads Jeremiah that I don't quite understand myself. Daniel, he reads the same passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25 that we just read. God says, I'm going to exile Israel for 70 years. And then after 70 years, I'm going to bring the people back and they will once again be restored in their homelands. That's about as straightforward a prophecy and a promise as you can get, right? Israel's judged. They go away for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, they will return. If you were an Israelite and you were reading the prophet Jeremiah, it seems like there's not really much you can do at this point except hang on and wait it out. Israel, she's done the crime. Now she needs to do the time. She needs to have a stiff upper lip. She needs to settle in to where she is. She needs to circle 538 BC on her calendar. And then she needs to wait for the day that her grandkids will be able to leave that foreign land and come back to the promised land. That's about all you could imagine that Israel could do. But that's not at all what Daniel does. Daniel reads that same passage and then he gets wild and crazy with spiritual disciplines. Do you see that in verse three? He reads this and then he prays. He pleads for mercy. He fasts. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He confesses personal and public sin. Daniel, all of a sudden, in response to this passage, he is begging with his whole being for God to have mercy on Israel to forgive her and then to send her back to the promised land. Somebody explain this to me. What exactly does Daniel think he's going to accomplish? He read the promise and now he's praying about the promise. God said 70 years, it's going to be 70 years. What is Daniel doing? Why is he responding in this way? Does Daniel think that by this impressive display of spirituality, that God is going to start shaving years off the exile? Like if he could just pray harder, like if he could just confess sin more deeply, like if his fasts would just last longer than they have in the past, then maybe God would see all of that and maybe God would begin to shave years off the exile. Maybe instead of 70, we're now talking about 69 years in exile. Is that something that's on the table? Is Daniel trying to move this thing forward? Or maybe on the opposite end, Daniel is just trying to do uh, damage control. He's just saying to himself, if nobody's praying about these things, maybe God will start adding years to the exile. Maybe if I miss my prayer plan and I don't do it and I don't cry out to God for his deliverance and his mercy, it's going to be 71 years or 72 years. Why does Daniel read a promise that God says this is what he's going to do and then he responds by begging God to do that very thing. 
I guess when I ask that question, I'm asking the same question that humanity has asked since the dawn of time. Why pray for something if God has already made up his mind? Why do you ask for something that God is already planning to do? Have you ever wondered that in your own prayer life as you think about what you pray for? If certain things are fixed, why am I applying myself in prayer to those same things? If God ordains, who's going to be saved? Why am I pleading for God, to God, for the sake of my lost friends and neighbors? If God says that in Christ he's already forgiven our sins, past, present, and future, why do I recite daily with the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts? If God has promised that every born-again believer he will carry in his hands until the day we die that we will endure, why am I asking every day for myself and those around me to indeed endure to the end? Why do I ask God for things that he has already promised to do? Why is Daniel doing that? Why should I do that? This is going to be really annoying, but I'm actually not even going to answer that question. At least, I'm not going to answer it from 10,000 feet. This morning, we're not going to peel back the curtain of who God is ontologically as a changeless, sovereign being, yet seek to understand how he relates to us covenantally in a dynamic, interpersonal relationship. If that's what you thought we were going to do this morning, you're going to be sorely disappointed. We're not going to do that because Daniel doesn't do that. Daniel doesn't put on his thinking cap and seek to figure this thing out. Daniel puts on sackcloth and ashes to submit himself to the one he doesn't presume to understand. He doesn't grab the reins. He's not in the driver's seat. He's not in control. He doesn't dictate terms. He really has nothing to negotiate with. He gets no guarantees. In short, Daniel doesn't presume on God's promise. Daniel reads a promise in the Bible and he gets on his face and he begs God that that promise will be fulfilled. We're not at 10,000 feet. We're not mediating the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In Daniel chapter 9, we're not even 10 inches off the ground acknowledging with James that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's a profound thought in the life of a believer. There's something for us, for every one of us here, in how we relate to God's promises. There is a place in the Christian life to ask God for something that he has already promised that he is going to give us. And when we do that, when we ask for those things that are guaranteed, we're asking for a promise in a way that makes us savor the promise. By asking for the thing promised, we get hungry for the thing promised. Praying, pleading, fasting for something that God has already guaranteed, 
is a way to taste that thing before it arrives in our lives. Now, I want to use a very silly illustration of this. Julie and I, last week, we were in Charleston, and we ate at our new favorite restaurant. I know that just sounds so pretentious to say that, you know, I'm annoyed with myself. But if you eat at this place, it's called Chow Bao Biscuit, and it will change your life. I'm telling you, it will change your life. We walk in, someone had recommended to us, it looks like a gas station that's been converted to an Asian fusion restaurant, which has got its own vibe going for it. Sit down, pick up the menu. First thing on the menu, I can't even pronounce, okonomiyaki, which is then described as a Japanese cabbage pancake. I don't know about y'all, but I've got this rule of thumb in a restaurant. When I see the word cabbage and pancake near each other, you know, that's not for me. I'm not doing that. But waitress comes and she says, you know, this first item on the menu People literally travel around the world to taste this thing. It's incredible. It's equal parts cabbage and oil. It's mixed with these incredible spices. It's fried on a flat top. It's drenched in sriracha and white sauce. You can put thick cut bacon on the top of this thing and people go bananas for it. It's incredible. Well, after a description like that, we said, you know what, we're in, we're getting this thing. So Julie and I are sitting there, we're waiting, and all of a sudden we hear the waitress at the table next to us begin to explain that to them, and next to us begin that to explain that to them, and then Julie and I are talking about it, and we're thinking about it, and then all of a sudden we smell it being made, and our mouths are watering, and then all of a sudden it starts getting delivered to the tables next to us, and we're just gawking at people who are eating this and just enjoying it. I mean, eyes are crossing, and it just looks like the new heavens and the new earth. It's incredible. And we realize that anticipation is half the meal. I mean, sitting, smelling, savoring, talking about it, that's half the meal. We are ready to get this thing and enjoy this thing. We're all the more hungry for it. And when it came, it did not in the least disappoint us. Now, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual disciplines as a means of tasting and savoring something before it is served up on our table in our lives. I want to give us a very practical example of this in the Christian life. I want to connect us as 21st century believers to Daniel in his situation, and I want to see the parallel that we share with Daniel. Daniel was a stranger in a foreign land, and he was waiting for his return to the promised land in Israel. We today, as believers, we are strangers, we are aliens, we are sojourners in a foreign land, and we are waiting for Jesus' return and our return to the promised land. Just like the day was fixed for Daniel, It's going to be 70 years of exile before you return. So the day, the hour, the minute is fixed in the life of the believer, only known to the Father when he will return. Knowing what we know, knowing that Jesus is coming, knowing that that time has been set by the Father, knowing that you and I cannot budge that time one bit, By our obedience, we can't bring it one minute into the future. And by our disobedience, we can't push it one minute into the future. How ought we then live? 
How do you live in light of a promise that is coming to us? We pray, we plead, we fast for something already guaranteed as a way for us to savor that thing before it arrives. Let me show you how that's done in the New Testament. There's about a dozen passages in our New Testaments that describe believers, Christians today, as eagerly waiting for Jesus' return. I think about passages like Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.8, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When the New Testament writers are thinking about this eager waiting, this is what they call us to, spiritual disciplines that will anticipate Jesus' arrival. Let me show you three of them, prayer, fasting, and obedience. Number one, prayer. The Apostle Paul, he writes this incredible book and this incredible ending to the book of 1 Corinthians, talking about Jesus' coming and his second coming and what that will entail. And then he ends his letter in 1 Corinthians 16.21 with what I think is one of the most beautiful, shortest prayers in all the Bible. He says, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. That's my prayer. Jesus, would you come? Maranatha. By praying for Jesus to come, I find myself wanting Jesus to come. Praying for Jesus' return, focusing my mind on that, asking for what that is going to entail, that's actually a way here and now to savor the return of Jesus himself. Number two, fasting. Jesus was once asked, why don't your disciples fast? You're doing this ministry on earth. You have disciples around you. Why do other people fast like the Pharisees and John's disciples? And your disciples, they're not fasting right now. And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is here, it's a time for celebration. I, myself, and the bridegroom, I'm here for these three years with you. This is a time to celebrate and not to fast. But when I go away, then my disciples will fast. Do you know that today is the day of fasting for the bridegroom to return? Fasting for that, literally putting aside food and distractions for that, is a way of tasting Jesus' return. Jesus, would you dull my appetite for food and the things of this world so that you will make me hungry for the fact that you are coming any minute? It's a discipline that increases our hunger. Finally, number three, obedience. The Apostle Peter, he devotes an entire chapter to this, Second Peter chapter 3, which is worth reading this afternoon. He calls the church to confession and obedience, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. When we obey, living for Jesus' return is a way of celebrating his return. I want to do on earth as it is done in heaven because I know very soon the kingdom of heaven will be made the kingdom of earth forever. Spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, 
confession, coming to worship on Sunday morning, gathering in our life groups and talking about these things, taking the Lord's Supper. These are gifts from God that will make us hungry for the new gifts that he is about to give us. When Daniel reads a promise in Jeremiah chapter 25, it's going to be 70 years and then and only then you're going to return to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. You will be restored as a people, the only thing Daniel can think to do is use every spiritual discipline at his disposal to savor the promise that is going to come for him. I want to just leave us with one image. As I was thinking about Jesus' return and reading passages relevant to that, I came across Luke 12, and this passage, this image, this parable, it rocked me to my core. Let me read the paragraph. Jesus says to us, stay dressed and ready for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he knocks and he may come in. Blessed are those servants. Christian, non-Christian, I tell you today, the master is coming. The master is coming. Whether you pray for that today or you forget to pray for that today, the master is coming. Whether you have your lamp burning and you are dressed and ready for action or spiritually speaking, you are lounging in your pajamas, the master himself, he is coming. Whether we think about that and meditate on that this week, whether we fast for his arrival and hunger for something more than we have, or we fail to do all of those things, the master is coming. His coming is as sure as the dawn and we will be united to him forever. Fasting, praying, confessing, obeying, gathering together and sharing these promises. This is an invitation from the back of the master's house to the front of the master's house. You're in the house regardless, but I invite you to the front to not be distracted by the things in the house, but to be enamored by the one who is coming to the house. When we practice these things, When we fast for these things, when we pray and confess and gather for these things, we're like that servant who is at the front door. We are dressed, our lamp is burning, we are ready for action, and the moment there is a knock on the door, we open it to receive the master who promises he will come. And I tell you, friends, that is is a blessed life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, give us courage and give us hunger. 
We want to be a people who fast and hunger for the bridegroom to arrive. Like Daniel, we see a promise set in stone and we plead for your mercy to fulfill that very promise in our midst. And so we pray together today, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We ask in your name, amen.